welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. How do you win a race? One step at a time. And some of those steps will be painful. But over time, conditioning improves, the pain is less. Then you know it's time to push harder, even though it means new pain. Like running for the body, suffering is exercise for our faith. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, The Ticket, Imputed Righteousness, with this message entitled Benefit Number 2, Profit in Tribulation, which covers Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 8. Thank you for joining us today. Before I teach, I know that there are many that are going to be uh, watching this by podcast, and so I'll just say right now, you're going to hear a little bit of a raspy voice. Uh, about Friday, came down with a, a little uh, a bit of a cold, I'm sure, from one of the grandkids. Who knows? But uh, whatever the case, uh, apologize for that. Bear with me, all right? We'll make it through. If I, were to, if I were to give you a list of things that I think important for you in your life, I bet I wouldn't be far off if I included these two. If I were to say you want to be at peace with God... Number two, you want to be experiencing the peace of God. I bet I wouldn't be very far off, huh? Don't we all want to know that if we're a theist, if we believe in God, we, we want this idea that I'm at peace with that God, and that God's at peace with me. And then secondly, we want to live through this life with the peace that God can give to people so that in the midst of difficult and challenging time, that we can experience something called peace. Everybody wants both of those. Everybody. In light of that, we're in a series that's literally hitting straight on to these two. We're in the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there to Romans chapter 5. This is a series. I'll put the series title up. It's called The Ticket. Why the ticket? What is the ticket to this peace with God? What is the ticket to finding this peace of God? And the answer, it's imputed righteousness. It's his righteousness imputed to us. The series began in chapter 3, verse 21. It'll take us through the end of chapter 5. I've given you a thesis And the thesis for last week, this week, and next week is simply this. There are three benefits guaranteed by the imputing of righteousness. Number one, peace with God, which we talked about last week. Number two, profit in tribulation, which is what we cover today. And then next in the series comes protection from God's wrath. All three, vitally important. In the last weeks, multiple weeks, we've been talking about righteousness by faith. If any of you are here saying, I really want to understand, how do I get this imputed righteousness? I don't understand faith. I've heard the term. I want to experience what it is. Go back over the past weeks. and We walk through that in great detail as the Apostle Paul, who authors this book under inspiration of God, has given clarity in great detail, not only to say what it is, but to clarify by saying what it's not. So I won't go back and try to survey all of that. But last week, 
we did come to this concept of peace with God. One of the benefits of righteousness. Now he's explained righteousness, imputed righteousness by faith. All right, what are some of those benefits? And one of them being peace with God. The first two verses of Romans chapter 5. Let's read that again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then it begins a list of three things that we exalt in. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. That's the first of three things he's going to say we have to exalt in. Now, I use the picture, the analogy of a circle that would be here called the circle of grace. It talks about this introduction into grace. I explained it last week. We are being brought into by faith, through the work of Christ, we're brought out of the world of darkness. Now, in that world of darkness, which every person is brought into this world as a participant of the world of darkness, even though we may be religious, we may be moral, or we may be in this spot outside the circle of grace and be irreligious, immoral, doesn't matter. Everything outside the circle of grace And then by the work of God's grace, he brings us into grace. Remember that? He brings us into grace, and we come into this circle of grace. And now in this circle of grace, we have peace with God. It's not we can have. We do have. We can never be put outside the grace circle. If we're in it, we stand in it forever. We talked about the aorist tense of the verb and what it means, and therefore it is what it is. We will always be. Can we be very disobedient While in this circle of grace, of course we can. Of course we can. Can we do things that we're very ashamed of? Absolutely. But the day we die, we stand in the presence of a holy God that looks at us in this righteousness with which we are clothed. We call it the imputed righteousness of Christ. And he holds on to us in love, and he says, I love you as much as I love my own son, the Lord Jesus. You're mine. You've been covered by my righteousness. Now, by the way, if we're in this circle of grace and we're very flippant about our sins and who cares and let them matter and I'll do and who give up, that would tell me this person is probably not in the circle of grace. Now, people in the circle of grace, because of the way they live, think, and act, and so forth, in that circle of grace can lose the assurance that they're in this circle of grace and indeed should in that kind of life. There are people that are outside the circle of grace who are extremely convinced and would argue strongly, oh, I'm in the circle of grace. I know I am because I do this, I go to church, I believe in Jesus, I do that, all these reasons. But there's not the fruit of being in the circle of grace. Now, in light of that, we have peace with God, but I know that many of us here are struggling to find the peace of God. It's very important to us. We're going to go through all kinds of stuff. How do I deal with it? How do I have peace? How do I keep it from just ripping me apart and so forth and so on? Well, God is giving us direction through this text, and I'm using the picture, the analogy of looking down into the circle of grace. If I look down 
and exalt in the truth of what goes with this circle of grace, then I'm going to experience, to a growing degree, peace of God. If I look outside the circle, don't look down and look at, oh, if I can get that, and oh, if I had that, and oh, if I accomplished this, and oh, if this, and this, this, this. Glad I'm in the circle of grace, but I'm looking, 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 looking. I'm not going to experience the peace of God. I've got to look down. Well, what do I see? Well, I see first that I can exalt. Why? Because I have the hope of the glory of God. That's the first thing we exalt in. We rejoice in it. It's like we, we get consumed by it. We embrace it fully. We make it the priority. However you want to define that word. It means exalt to make it everything. Oh, I exalt in the reality that I have the, the hope here of the glory of God. And we explain what that hope is. It is something that God has promised to us that we get to enjoy that which he's promised but which is yet to come. It hasn't come yet, but it's been promised and I'm going to exalt in the promise. And he talks about the hope of the glory of God, glory of God. We talked about that. It can be the glory of God, literally his glory, but it can also be the glory of God given to us. We talked and talked through that last week. I conclude the time saying, now, if you're having a hard time looking down, you find yourself straying all the time and looking out, consumed and enamored and loving it all, well, God has an ingenious plan to get us to look down, right? And the plan is what? Tribulation. He gives us tribulation. That's a foreign thought to many people. Well, God allows us to have tribulation. What are you talking about? Not God. He doesn't want us to go through tribulation. Well, keep in mind the statement I've often quoted here. God, he really does. He decrees what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And he loves us enough to allow us to go through tribulation. And so with that, we're going to look now at our text. It is because of God's law saying that it requires sinful people to die And since all people have sinned and therefore must die, therefore we can conclude that all sinful people are going to experience tribulation. I want you to hear that. It is true. Tribulation is a part of every person's life, inside or outside the circle of grace. So some people think, now if I'm out here, all right, I'm going, to experience, I'm going to experience a lot of stuff, tribulation. I understand that. Well, there are a lot of Christians that believe, now wait, if I'm loved by God and I'm brought into the circle of grace, then certainly God is not going to have any part to play. He does not want anything to do. He's going to make sure that I do not have tribulation. And therefore, if I do have tribulation, something is wrong. It shouldn't be that way. That's not true. Now, this even accenting it further some people think that if I'm out here I deserve tribulation but if I step into the circle of grace I no longer deserve I've been cleansed by the work of Christ therefore I do not deserve tribulation not true it's not according to scripture 
No one says that in Scripture. It's totally erroneous, and we need to understand that. Now, in light of that, I'm going to suggest that Jesus, Paul, and Peter, they all, in multiple occasions, addressed this subject and said, don't you think that way about tribulations? Now, I'm going to skip ahead for our, I'm going to go a little ahead of here. I want to look at John 16, 33. Now, this is Jesus, his own words, when he's talking about this. He says, these things I've spoken to you so that you, that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. All right, you're going to have it, he says, but I've overcome the world in which you have the tribulation. That's the good news. But he never denied that we're going to have tribulation. Look at the Apostle Paul. Now, this is in the book of Acts 14. This is where Paul has, has just been stoned. Now, I know a number of you have experienced being stoned. This is different. This is literally, <laughs> we're talking rocks. I mean, like really being pelted with rocks. When you get hit with rocks with the purpose of killing you, that is not a good day. You don't think highly of it. You got to think this isn't right. Here's a man who is an ambassador like nobody else has ever been. He's in the middle of the circle of grace, running hard for the kingdom of God. And look what he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You think of Peter. Is there any greater leader of the disciples than Peter? Look what Peter says in the fourth chapter of his first epistle. He said, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, tribulations, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. By the way, notice that word testing in just a minute. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Notice that word rejoicing, exalting actually. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. There it is. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of God and the glory and of God rests on you. Now, the question has to be addressed and asked, well, why should the Christian exalt in tribulation? Why would that be? I'm going to suggest two reasons. One, because tribulation produces stress and stress has two important values. And I want to put those two values up for you. The first of the two values is to reveal what something is made of. What does stress do? It reveals things. Number two, it also strengthens things that are weak. You can take things that are weak, put them in pressure long enough, they become stronger. The very reasons. In fact, let's, let's kind of dig into those just quickly. This idea of the revealing nature of stress what it reveals. You take a metal and you say, well, is it steel? Is it aluminum? I don't know. It's what, you know, all you got to do, put it under stress. And you say, ah, this is this kind of metal, not that kind of metal. You take a gem and say, well, it looks like a diamond. What if it is? I don't know. It could be fake. May not. How will you know? Put it under pressure. You'll find out. People, are they really religious or are they really a righteous person? Somebody in the circle of grace. Oh, I'll tell you how you can find out. 
put a little pressure, reveals what's actually there. Look how the great commentator, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, look how he says it. He says, there is no more important and subtle test of our profession of the Christian faith than the way we react to the trials and the troubles and the tribulations of this world. So Jesus is having his teaching ministry, and many of you remember this. It's called the parable of the soils, and there are four soils. It seems like everybody seems to interpret this, that the first one's a Christian, is not a Christian, obviously, the first soil. The last soil is a Christian, and the two in the middle, they're not strong Christians, but at least they're Christians. That's not the teaching of the text. The one we know is not a Christian The next two, they're not Christians either. But they appear to be because of certain things. But it's revealed that they're not. Look at this one. This one it says in Matthew 13. Yet this one has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. He goes on to say, you'll know them by their fruit. The last one has fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. 30 is not good fruit, but it is fruit. And he introduces the whole thing, so you'll know if they're really Christians by their fruit. No fruit, one, two, or three. And how do you determine? Well, pressure can actually be the very thing that shows what's real. So let's look at our text. It won't take us long. First of all, I'll give you verse 3 of chapter 5. It reads like this. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulation, and then the next words, knowing that we're going to come to that what we know but not only this we also exult in our tribulations it means to glory or boast now it doesn't mean that we have to be glad for our tribulations that would be ridiculous but we glory in our tribulation that's different that means that we see it for what it is and we accept it in light of what it is Not that we're glad, but that we can glory in it. When he talks about tribulations, when he says in our tribulations, he's not saying in spite of, but he's saying actually because of our tribulations, we actually should exalt. We should look down, keep in mind that there's a reason for these tribulations, and we begin to exalt. Well, why would we do that? Or how do you do that? And this is what he says. Knowing that, and I'm going to suggest three things we know from this text to be true about our tribulations. And here's the first one. The byproduct of our tribulation is hope. Verses 3 and 4, we'll read that. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance and our perseverance proven character and our proven character hope. It begins and it ends with hope. Now, we read this text and we say, wait, I don't, I'm not really sure. Wait. We rejoice and exalt in our tribulations because tribulation brings perseverance. Perseverance to do what? Bear under your tribulation. Well, I just soon not have tribulation. I need to have tribulation so I can learn to live through tribulation. Well, there is some truth to it, by the way. If we dead-ended right there, it wouldn't make sense. It does continue on. But I will say this. 
those people who have handled problems, deep problems over the long haul, man, they get accustomed and they get good at dealing with those kind of challenges. They learn to persevere. I've had a lady in this church for many, many years. Had a son that she cared for through his adult, young adult life. He was a single mom. He had muscular dystrophy. Took his life eventually. Single mom, small income, this, all kind of challenges. And Carol and I would say time and time again, didn't it amaze you? Didn't it amaze you how Donna just bears under this and able to handle it and keeps smiling and keeps going as if that, how? It's amazing. Let me tell you, she got conditioned. It's just like an exercise. You start a new exercise program and oh, it kills you at first. But in time, you learn to persevere. You handle it much better. But he doesn't put a period there. He says, ah, yeah, knowing that it produces perseverance. But then it says, and perseverance brings about proven character. That's what we want is character. That's where the best of the fruit of life comes out of our character. And then he says, and proven character brings about hope. Let me tell you, if we don't have hope, we don't want life. I met with a man yesterday for lunch. He has no hope. That means ready to end life. And we talk about life and what's important. I have no hope. Where do I go? They say, you know what you need if you want hope? You got to have character. You want character? You're going to have to persevere. You are going to persevere. It means that you've got tribulation. Now, you got plenty of that, so we got, we got a good starting point. But if you just go through that, there's going to be no hope because there's a passageway to hope. And that passageway says you've got to persevere. Doesn't mean the tribulation is going to go away for you to get hope. But those very things can build character, which will actually give you the hope that would cause you to want to live. You follow? He's, he's, God knows what we need. And he says this is the way you can truly get hope. Now let's make sure we know what hope is. I'll give you Webster definition. Here's what Webster says. Feeling that what's wanted will happen. That's the definition. Well, Webster may be good at writing dictionaries, but he's not a theologian. I mean, that's not biblical hope at all. Do you hear that? It's what we feel will happen will happen. What we feel we want to happen is going to happen, therefore I got hope. No. Actually, it is an expectation, not just a feeling, but an expectation that is well-founded that something good will happen and should be expected to happen. That's what hope is. For instance, different expressions. Here would be the non-biblical approach. That's to say, I have a wish, but I have no expectation. That's not real hope. That person says, you know, I hope to get a new job. I hope to get invited to the prom. But that's all it is. There's 
there, it's just a hope. I, I can't say I expect it, and I certainly don't have any basis for expecting it. That's not real hope. Or second approach to hope, somebody say, well, I expect it, but there's no basis for that expectation. That person says, I expect to get a job, or I expect to get a date, but I haven't got any interviews coming up. I don't see any coming up, or I haven't had a date in three years, and I don't see anybody that's really interested. You can hope, but that's not real hope. Real hope is where there is an expectation and a strong reason that accompanies it. That person says, I hope to get a date. And the reason is because John said he would call me about going out. Well, that's, a, that's the hope of the Bible. Expectation with basis. That's used 180 times in Scripture. It is really the only thing that real hope is. Now, in light of that, let's hit the second and third, and they're very, very, very quick. And we'll close her out. The guarantee of our hope is God's love. Verses 3 and 5. Let's read it. It says, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The reality is that we have an expectation. Why? Because of God's love. Uh, I have reason to believe that because his love has been poured out in my heart. How is that? It's through the Holy Spirit that's been given to me. Therefore, innately, we have a sense of truth that God is doing something in me and he is working in my life. That is my reason to hope. What I like to do is I like to read a a letter. It's by a man named Henry Venn. This was in the 1700s. He was a godly man. He had five little children. He lost his wife. Tragically lost his wife. He writes this letter, I'm not sure to whom, but this tells you what someone who is in the circle of grace and who looks down at his tribulation and he exults in it. And you're going to see the very teaching of Romans 5 throughout this letter. It's a little old in English a bit. It's a little long. I think you'll be glad I read it. Let's read it. It says, I am now a living witness of the truth you so strenuously maintain and of the necessity of that truth in our miserable condition here below. Did I not know the Lord to be mine, were I not certain his heart feels even more love for me than I am able to conceive? Were not this evident to me, not by deduction and argument, but by consciousness, by his own light shining in my soul, into what a deplorable situation should I have been now cast? I've lost all that I could wish myself to have been in the partner of my cares and joys and lost her when her industry and ingenuity and tender love and care of her children were all just beginning to be perceived by the two eldest girls and to strike them with a sense of the excellency of such qualities. I have lost her when her soul was as a watered garden, when her mouth, was opened to speak for God. And he was blessing the testimony she bore to a free, full, and everlasting pardon in the blood of Jesus. Nevertheless, I can say all is well. Hallelujah. 
For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. At all times and in everything pertaining to me, let him do what seemeth him good. Then, and yet more important, were there no Holy Spirit now to strengthen me mightily? Were there nothing more than a dependence on the word of promise? Without an almighty power, an agent to explain, impress, and apply it, now would my hands hang down and my knees be so feeble that I should faint and fall under the pressure of my cross. But on the contrary, I abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit given unto me. I rejoice in tribulation. From the experience I now have, more than I possibly could in a less severe trial, that the man of sorrows is as rivers of water in a dry place and giveth songs in the night, is not that very wonderful. Let me tell you, folks, that's somebody who understands what it is to look down and see their tribulation to rejoice in their tribulation. Let's look at number three. Number three. The proof of God's love is Jesus' death. All right, we got these terrible problems, but we got the, we got the assurance of God's love, but how do we know that love? I know the Holy Spirit is there for us to experience, but he says, no, you've got the proof of Jesus' death, verses six through eight to end it. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember last week, somebody kills your child? You have to stand in that person's presence? How would you do it? Much less, how would you give your life for such a person? That's the story of Jesus' love. And that's how we know that we can have a true peace of God when we can even rejoice in our tribulations. So can I encourage you with these three thoughts? What do you do? What do I do? What do we do when... We experience tribulation. These three things, maybe. One, examine our circumstances in light of our eternal, of our eternal design. Would we do that now? Would we be a people that would look down and say, I see my tribulations? And I've been looking at them out here in the world, thinking, how am I going to live and how am I going to do this? How am I? Instead of, look, God, look how you've designed my circumstances to work in me to give me the hope I need. Number two, acknowledge God's love in spite of your circumstances. Would you do that? Would we be willing to say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to say, God, in light of everything that's happened to me, I acknowledge your love. I look to the cross of Jesus, and I can't deny it. How shall you not with him Freely give me all things if you will take your son and put him on the cross. I'll acknowledge your love. And maybe if that's still a little hard to grasp, number three, thank God in spite of the pain. The verse in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 13, the fruit of the lips that give praise to God. See, that's when we exalt 
when we're able to say, you know, Lord, I'm in your grace, I know. I'm experiencing tribulation that seems unbearable. I don't have peace. But as we look down and we exalt in these three arenas, and particularly this when we look at our tribulation, and we say, Lord, it'll be the fruit of my lips that I will give praise to you for the life I have right now. I think that's the beginning of the birth of that peace of God that we've been looking for. Couple that with the hope of the glory of God and what we'll look at next, the hope of God himself. Let me tell you, there is a way, as this man illustrated in his letter, there is a way to have that kind of hope. Go to the cross, see the work of Jesus, see his love. Remember, nothing, nothing's going to happen to you or me outside his love, attending to it. Seeker, you go to the cross and see that love and come into the circle of grace. Then you can have peace with God, and that begins the birth of peace of God as we pray together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we bow again before you now, and we say we need to confess because some of us here have been far, far from giving thanks in the midst of our pain. Some of us have been complaining and been looking only at the negative side of our problem, not at the advantage that they bring us ultimately through your hand. And we've not had faith. We want to trust in you. We ask you, God, would you now work in us so that we might find our head tilted down as we leave this place? And that we might keep it down through the next week, work and family and issues that we face. May we exalt in the hope of your glory. May we exalt in your tribulation that you have sent for our good, allowed because you love us. And Lord, would you grant us ultimately to learn to exalt in you who you are. You never change. Grant that, our Father, because many here are hurting. Many of us need the truth, and we know it's the truth that sets us free. We long for the freedom, but God, let us long for your glory even more. For that reason, we submit and bow. We pray in Christ's name. We're going to sing a song to close. And the song is, uh, is written by a man, Horatio Spafford. You'll be familiar with the song. Many of you will. But you won't know the story, perhaps, behind it. Horatio Spafford, a great Presbyterian Christian leader, lived in Chicago, was a great supporter and friend of D.L. Moody. And in fact, D.L. Moody, these the 1800s, was about to head over to Europe to do a campaign. And so he decided that I'll take my family, four little girls and a, and a mother, and we'll all go over and we'll make our vacation there. They'd gone through the Chicago fire of 71 and had destroyed most of their family's investments and they were well-to-do people but lost virtually all but something came up at the last hour as they were about to leave and he had to stay behind and said I'll catch the next ship over but I've got to stay here and attend to this business while that ship was on its way to Europe English vessel hit it 226 people died most everybody died four little girls lost their lives the mother one of the few that survived when she got to Europe she was only able to 
wire a message back. Two simple words, saved alone. While he was on the next vessel going over to meet his, his wife, he was out looking over the waters thinking about somewhere my wife's, you know, my children have, have been lost here. And the captain, knowing his story, came out and said, Sir, you may be interested to know it was probably about this area right here where the vessel was struck and submerged. He went back to his cabin and he wrote the words of this great song. And you and I know it is, it is well with my soul. When he writes this, he's hurting. But the truth prevailed. That's how we find hope when truth prevails over pain. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.